0: Take your Bible, if you will, and open it to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue walking, verse by verse, through this great letter. And uh, we've been through, working through this letter over the last several weeks, and we're just looking at it from the standpoint of rejoice. You know, Paul, many, many times, I think it's 16 times in this letter, says rejoice, or uh, have joy. And so we want to find joy in Christ. We want to find joy in his work, despite the situations that we find in our lives and life is not rosy anybody's life rosy all the time if so i want to be your friend i want to learn how you're doing it but the reality is life is difficult life is tough life has challenges and yet all through it jesus is faithful and good and he's our refuge and so philippians chapter two we're going to be in two simple verses verses 12 and 13 this morning probably very familiar uh, verses Uh, you might even have them memorized that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know, Mark Twain once said, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. Can you resonate with that quote this morning? That when you look at someone's life, you think, man, that's awesome. They're doing wonderful. I love how they're living. I love how they're doing whatever it is they're doing, but I just don't know how I can take what they're doing and interject it into my life and what I'm doing. And so we understand what Mark Twain was, was moving toward in this statement. We, we understand it for our own lives. I mean, think about it. There's not much more disheartening thing than to see the achievements, see the abilities in others, but not be able to implement those, not be able to duplicate that example in our own lives. And, and so as good as an example may be, think about it. It's powerless unless it is able to come inside your life and fuel from the inside out. Admiration for something or for someone is, is, is can inspire us. It's, it's great, but it is useless because we cannot emulate it in our lives. Unless the person can enter into our own lives, enter into our own person, enter into our own situation, share the skills that are needed, we cannot attain to those heights or to those accomplishments. It takes more than an example on the outside. It takes power on the inside. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. Uh, I've shared before, uh, you know, as you get older and older and older, you reminisce about the yesteryears and you... Hopefully, don't embellish, but we tend to embellish on those yester years, and we become better than we are. And so, every story I tell you from high school and from my athletic days, I'm sure is probably not true reality, but I'm I'm trying to give you as straight as possible. You're supposed to laugh at that, right? That's how bad of a joke teller I am that I got to prompt you to laugh at that. But I've mentioned before that I ran track in high school. It was um, something I, I I did because. I like the competition. I don't run. Like People ask me all the time, do you run? Do you work out by by doing cardio? I say, that's of the devil. I don't do that kind of stuff. So, I didn't run in high school and do track because I necessarily loved it. I loved the competition of going against the person next to me in the lane or or whatever. But in high school, I was a track athlete. I I ran sprints. I long jumped. I did things like that. And, and, And so back then, Carl Lewis was a big deal. Uh, mid-90s. He was moving toward his last Olympic Games in 96. And, and so he was the example I looked to as a sprinter, the example I looked to as a long jumper. You probably remember Carl Lewis. He's a nine-time t- nine Olympic gold medalist. He ran the 100 meter in less than 10 seconds. He ran the 200 meter in less than 20 seconds. And back then, that was a big deal. He long jumped 71 times, I think, over 28 feet. And so that is huge. I mean, if you're a long jumper, you know how huge that is. And so he's the perfect example for an aspiring track athlete. And yet, no matter how well I mimicked his style, it didn't matter how well I, I looked at his posture and, and tried to emulate that while I was there getting in the blocks, it didn't matter how I took and looked at his training regimen and tried to, to, to supersede that over into my own training, I was unable to meet or even to come close to his stats. We're not going to go into what my stats were. Let's just say that they were far below the great Carl Lewis's. It's obvious he's a superior athlete to not only me, but the vast, vast majority of people in the world. And so unless Lewis was able to implant himself in my little body, there was never going to be a day that I could put up the numbers that he did. You know, the Apostle Paul, as we come to verses 12 and 13 in this chapter, has just presented Jesus Christ as the great example. He's just presented Jesus as this example of how to live the submissive life, the the submissive mind, how to humble yourselves and walk with the Lord and, and follow his leadership and have God work mightily in your life. And so we read it and we agree with what Paul says there in the first 11 verses. But the question surely comes back to us of, How do I practice this? You know, verse 5 says, Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Great. I want that mind, but how do I put it into my life? How do I implement this? How do I take what Jesus did, this wonderful example, and follow it to the letter? I mean, think about it. How can any mortal man or any mortal woman ever hope to do what Jesus did? He is God incarnate. He's God in the flesh. In fact, it even would seem presumptuous to even try to do what Jesus did. And yet that's what Paul's calling us to do. So we have a problem here. And, And I would submit, though, that the problem is not as daunting as we may think it is. It's not as if Paul's telling us to reach for the stars. Rather, what he's doing is setting before us the divine pattern for the submissive mind, for the divine power to accomplish what God has commanded. You remember what Jesus said in John 15:5? He says, "I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus, there in the Gospel of John, tells us how we can do what he did. It's not by looking at his style, looking at the way he does things, and say, all right, I'm going to go and just mimic that. No, he says, I'm going to plant my life into your life, and you've got to be planted in me. Therefore, when you do that, you can accomplish much. That's how we Follow this example. So the key here is abiding in Christ. Finding your house, your residence, your home in the life of Jesus. So it's not by imitation. Think about it. It's by incarnation. The life of Jesus planted in your life. Paul understood this very well. He said in Galatians 2.20, Therefore, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's not my life, Paul says. It's life of Jesus being pressed out through my life. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Over and over and over again, we see in the New Testament, we could go to the Old Testament and see very similar things, but we see that when God comes into your life, he deposits himself there, and he's the one who lives the Christian life through you. That's the good deposit. So we don't look to Jesus and say, like we would look at Carlos and say, man, I wish I could be like him. I probably will never attain to that, but hopefully I can pick up a few things. we look at Jesus and we don't see him just an example. We see someone who's actually living in us and pressing his life out through ours. And So in salvation, God has departed his life into our lives. And now as we live Christian lives, it's his life. As I said, it's being pressed out. Therefore, rather than being a series of ups and downs, and that's why I mentioned earlier, how many of you have just a, a perfect life, a wonderful life with never any issues in circumstances? None of us have that because this is what happens. You go through life, it's a storm, you're coming out of a storm, you're going into a storm, right? It's this up and down thing. And many times our walk with Jesus is an up and down thing. And so rather than being that, The Christian life should be a process of ins and outs. God is working in you, and you are working out from what he has worked in. So we cultivate the mind of Christ by responding to the life of the Lord that is deposited and made available to us. Jesus has never asked us to live the Christian life in our own willpower. Never has he done that. In fact, Jesus would rebuke us for living the Christian life in our own power, in our own abilities, in our own strength. He would rebuke us and call that sinful. We are to live our lives in his power, allowing his life to be pressed out through ours, taking and using the deposit of God within us. Paul explains this reality in the passage that we're going to see here this morning. He calls upon believers to go to work in their faith to go to work in their faith. Look there in Philippians chapter 2, two simple verses. Look at verse 12. Therefore, remember, when we're reading Scripture, we see the word therefore. What does it mean? Well, we want to look backwards. It's one of those sign statements to look backwards, and is going to build upon what he's already said and bring some truth to us. So therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love these verses. I would never allow you to listen to a sermon that I had preached 20-something years ago, but if I can remember rightly, correctly, I think one of the earliest messages I ever preached as a sophomore or junior in college, I think was on this passage. And I used some sort of gym type of language, obviously, and uh, talked about how we need to work out what God has worked in. If you listen to those, that, that message, and thank goodness it's not on tape, it would, uh, it would blister your ears, I'm sure, and it was probably five minutes long, so maybe you'd prefer that. But it was one of the earliest messages I believe I've ever shared. But what we see here is that these verses provide us with a wonderful starting point for the Christian life. Uh, really for the idea of understanding what is in the Christian life, this idea called sanctification, the the idea of this lifelong process where we are working day by day, moment by moment, being conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus, growing in our Christ-likeness. That is what sanctification is. And so when we read these two verses here, we dare not read into these verses, into this passage, a works-based salvation. Paul's not telling us to work for our salvation. He's not telling us here, telling the Philippians here, that if they will work hard and work for their own salvation, then hopefully at the end of time, when they stand before the Lord, that their good will outweigh their bad and they will be allowed into paradise. That is not the message of the gospel. It's not the message here. And so when we're reading scripture, we want to make sure that we keep everything in its context. And if we were to read that into these verses, it would distort everything else that the Bible has to say about salvation. But what Paul does do is he calls for them to work from that salvation, to work out that salvation, to put it to work in their lives. So he's not calling them to work for it. He's calling them to work out their salvation to live out of this new life, to enjoy Christ and what he's enabled them to do, to express the mind of the Lord. So as we go to work in our salvation, there's a couple ingredients we want to understand, want to to mention here, things that are necessary as we want to press out the life of Jesus in our lives. So I I want us to look at these verses, and I want us to do so in reverse order. And the first thing I want you to see here is God's provision. As we think about going to work in our faith, we need to understand what he says in verse 13. That God is the one who has provided all that we need to work out. And so right here in verse 13, we see some beautiful and encouraging words. Paul reminds us that Paul was, or we need to be reminded as we look at these verses, that Paul's writing to the church in Philippi. Remember, as I said last week and many other weeks, he's writing from a prison cell. He's awaiting trial. Literally, the emperor's verdict could be a life or death situation for him. He's writing to encourage the church, and rather than writing to say, "Hey, my life is horrible. I'm in these chains. I'm I'm seeing Praetorian guards all the time. My life is hanging in the balance." Rather than making a big deal about that, he's writing to a church to encourage them. He understands the internal pressures. He understands the external pressures, and he wants to help them to live out their faith in all facets of life. And so, what better person to write about God's provision than the man who's literally sustained by God's provision every single day? And so, the Philippians were able to live out their faith simply and solely because God had and was working in them. That's what we read here. Think about that. The Philippians were able to live out their Christian life because God had, at one point in the past, worked in them. And not only then, but he's continuing to work in their lives. The God of creation... The God who created you and I is the God who is working in our lives, just as he was working in the Philippians' lives. That's what we see here in verse 13. Paul says, it is God who works in you. How many of you this morning understand that God is working in your life? He's working in your life. You you may say, man, I, I feel distant from the Lord this morning. I feel like I'm walking at a distance from God. My fellowship with him is is not what it ought to be. My fellowship with other believers is not what it ought to be. Even in that, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to know this morning, God is using that to work in you. He's using how that makes you feel empty, how that makes you feel uh, anxious, perhaps. And he's using it to draw you to himself. He's always working in our lives as followers of Jesus. I, I love the term here. The term translated works is the word from which we derive our English word energy. I mean, if you look at it in the Greek, it's, it's almost identical. It's energy. It means to work effectually. See, the Bible makes it clear that salvation is the work of God. We know that. That salvation is not something we conjure up. It's definitely not something that we earn. It is the work of God. It is his divine initiative. He alone made salvation possible. How did he do that? We sang about it this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Salvation is possible because God himself came in the form of a human being, shed his blood upon the cross as a sacrifice to pay the sin debt so that we could be forgiven. He alone also effectually calls sinners from their sin to their Savior. Today, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I want to know Jesus and I want to experience the life he has to offer. No, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. I've been to many funerals, preached many funerals. I have yet to see a dead body rise up out of the casket and start speaking. If I did see that, you probably wouldn't see me for a while. I would slip out. I'd be going out to the truck. Let's, we got to get a gun or something, right? Something's going on. This is like apocalyptic type stuff. I've watched too many weird movies. Dead people don't seek things, they're dead. God is the initiator in salvation. He's also the initiator in our sanctification. God's divine initiative never ceases after salvation. It continues to work in our lives. See, the verb here, I love the verb here. Not only do I like how it, what it means, I love the tense that it's in. It's present active. It means that it's an ongoing thing. God is working in our lives. God is energizing us as followers of Jesus. He's the power source through the indwelling of his spirit within your life. He's the energy. He enables believers to not only experience the life of Christ, but also to live out the life of Christ. He is the energy in our salvation. He's also the energy in our sanctification. To what end, you may ask? Paul goes on to say, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, God gives man the will and he energizes the work. And the result, is of, uh, the result of God's work within us is that there is a desire for us to just let God do his work in our life. God gives us that. He changes our want-tos. You see, when we come to know Jesus Christ, there's a lot in our life probably that changes immediately. There will be a lot more that will change as we continue to walk with Jesus, as he continues to change your want-tos. You say, what's a want-to? Well, as a sinful human being, you would say, I want to do this, but now as a follower of Jesus, we understand this doesn't bring glory to the Lord, and so now my new want-to is, I want to do this over here. I want to do this because it honors the Lord. He changes our want-tos. That happens all the time. At least it ought to. And all of this is directed toward God's good pleasure. He's energizing the work, and he's doing it for his good pleasure. In other words, he works in us to live in a manner that satisfies and glorifies him. Today, as Christ followers, we have the desire to know God, right? Right? We have the desire to walk with God. We have the desire to grow in God. We have the desire to fellowship with God's people. We have the desire to serve others and to shine as lights in the world. Not because we have this energy and this desire and this good heart and and this just I want to do something for the Lord. That doesn't come from within you and I apart from the spirit of God who's the deposit in our life. He energizes that. He fuels that. He's the provider. That's what I want you to see out of verse 13. God is the provider. So this brings us to a second ingredient. As we think about how do I go to work in my faith, I need to understand that God has provided all that I need to honor Him, glorify Him, and, and to have His life be pressed out through mine. So He's the, the, the provider. What's my responsibility then? It brings us to the second point, and that is it requires my obedience. My obedience. God's divine initiative always calls for a human response, right? In salvation. It, that, that happens, correct? You heard the gospel. What did you do to the gospel? You responded. Right? Uh, you guys awake this morning? What's going on here? I mean, smile, exp- move your head. I want to know that you're not the corpse I was talking about in the casket while ago. Uh, we, won't, we won't do anything to harm you. When you heard the gospel... And if you're a Christian today, you responded to it. That's what's going on here. Divine initiative calls, divine initiative, if you will, sparks you to new life. And, And that's coupled with your response back to the gospel. A response of repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Believing on the gospel. So it's true in salvation, but it's equally true in sanctification. Human energy can never accomplish the work of God. And yet the Lord has chosen to not accomplish his purposes without it. We must give some human initiative there. So these two functions perfectly work in harmony. As God is providing his life, his power, man is receiving and obeying. Jesus talks a lot in the Gospels about obedience. He says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. How do we know we really have faith in Jesus? We'll do what he said to do, And so here in verse 12, Paul commends the Philippians for their obedience to the Lord's call and provision. Uh, look what he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, you say, Pastor, where'd you get that idea of obedience? I got it from Paul. The Philippians were obeying the gospel in their lives. They were obeying the call of God upon them. And so Paul is commending them for that. It's this idea of trust and obey. You know the song, Trust and Obey, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I'm not one of those singing preachers because I can't sing, but I will quote the song. Ricky doesn't want me in the choir. (laughs) He probably is wondering if I will stop singing so loud. on the. Maybe that's why the music keeps going up in volume, guys. I don't know about that. James, the half-brother Jesus, said something very similar. He talks about a faith and works, or rather a faith that works in chapter 2. And so these, two, or these ideas are one and the same. Paul called for them to continue to express consistency in their lives, whether he's present or absent. Continue to walk for the Lord. Continue to live for the Lord. Continue to allow Jesus' life to be pressed out through yours. In fact, he says that they were to do much more work in their salvation, and to do it with fear and trembling. So again, Paul here is not presenting a works based salvation. How do you know that? Well, he's writing to believers. These people already know Jesus, they're already in relationship with Jesus. You go to Acts chapter 16 and you see how the, the, the church there in Philippi was birthed. Lydia uh, hears the gospel, opens her home up, a, a church is planted there through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. These are believers he is writing to. So God has already worked in them, already deposited his life. Now, what Paul's saying is that human initiative needs to couple with and complement the divine initiative. They're to work out what God has worked in, because no one can work out what has not first been worked in to someone's life. Using the, the, the analogy of athletics again, the workout, work in. If if your desire is to say, you know what, I want to be a bodybuilder and all you are is a skeleton, you will never be a bodybuilder. This is a horrible illustration, but go with me here for a second. (laughs) Think of a person who has no flesh, no muscles. He's a skeleton walking around. He says, I want to be Arnold Schwarzenegger with the biggest muscles in the world. Well, you can't be that because you don't have muscles. You first need something to work in flesh and tissue and sinews and all that stuff so that then you can work from this deposit and build what needs to be built upon your life. And as a Christian, you're not doing it in your own power with some pre-workout drinks and some some protein. You're doing it with the energy and the power of God working in and from the core of your life that was not on my notes that was (laughs) straight off the top of my head look at this term work out it means to do verse 12 so now not as in my presence only but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It means to do. It means to bring about. It means to produce or to carry out. The the term carries the idea of working to full completion, carrying something to its logical conclusion. So if we were to think of this in mathematical terms, it would mean, and I can't do this new math. I can only do the old math that the rest of us older people in here do. My kids will come home and be like, hey, dad, I need you to help me with math. I look at how they're doing. I'm like, this is rocket science to me. I don't know what this means, but I'll tell you how to do it the real way. <laughs> so, In terms of our old math, I'm sorry to our teachers, I just offended, but um, in terms of mathematics. When you start an equation, you don't just start to, to just quit halfway. You start an equation to get to the logical conclusion. I was hanging pictures yesterday, and so I'm taking measurements, and I'm doing different stuff. And you'll see some of that in my office in the building later when we have our open house. And so I'm writing all this stuff down so I don't forget the numbers and, and mess it up because I did that like five times. And so I'm doing math, right? I'm doing fraction math. I'm trying to do all this stuff, and I'm working it to its logical conclusion. It it's the idea also of mining minerals out of the earth in order to extract all of the valuable ore. You don't just drill a mine because you know there's mineral deposits down there and get about halfway and stop. No, work out means I'm going to go to the full completion of this so I can mine out of this mine every valuable resource that's there. Think about it from the standpoint of Farming. The farmer works the field so as to get the greatest yield. I know we got a lot of farmers in this area, but when I used to pastor in Kentucky, uh, we were surrounded by farms. I mean, our church was a rural church; it's on the back end, the far end of a state highway, and and farms all around. Coal mine on one side, farms and everything else. And, and those guys had huge farm equipment. I mean, when you uh, went back there just a few years ago to do some deer hunting in the fall, and so uh, they were getting some last crops out of the, out of the field that late October, early November, and, and I was reminded that on those little narrow roads, when the combine's coming down the road with no head on it, when it's coming down the road, you don't just get off to the shoulder. You put it in full wheel drive, and you go through the ditch, otherwise you will get pushed off the road. And so I remember you know, just this week thinking about that, what a farmer does. Today, in all the new technology, they can, with GPS, map out everything in the field so that the farmer can maximize the land to get the greatest yield. It's an amazing type of thing. That's what this is teaching us. This is what it's talking about. We want to carry it to its fullest completion. So in our Christian lives, like a mine or a field, there's a tremendous potential in your life. As a follower of Jesus, there is incredible potential in your life, not because you're a wonderful person, but because God has put a wonderful deposit in you. Amen? It's the life of Christ that is the potential. And so God also is actually working to enable believers to fulfill that potential. He doesn't leave it on us to tap the potential. He taps it for us. All we got to do is comply. Paul says obey, not, as, not so much in my presence, not just in my presence, but also in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what we have here is divine initiative complementing with obedience uh, the, the life of God in the life of the believer, responding in faith, responding in action to all that God is working in us, in and then all of this is done with a healthy fear of God, with a healthy understanding, a, a righteous all of who he is. We don't work out our salvation because we feel like that we're serving an old cantankerous uh grandpa that's up there in heaven with a big stick that's going to whack us on the head. That is not the gospel. We have a holy, righteous, awesome, benevolent, faithful, good God who's deposited his life within us. And if we will just complement what he's given us, the world would be amazed at what we see. Do you believe that for yourself today? I think sometimes we, we just, we settle for lesser Christianity than what God wants for us. We're settled just trying to get up in the morning and make it through the day. Trying to get up on Monday, do our five days, and we're just living for the weekend. Man, what if we looked at life from a different perspective saying, God lives within me I want to tap into that resource. I want to surrender to him. I want his life to be pressed out through mine. And so it's not on me anymore. It's on him. Oh, the life that we would see if that was true of us. How do you do it? You go to work. Through obedience, you just follow and surrender to the provision of God in his life. And it's a tall task. The Bible tells us to be holy for God is holy calls us to live lives that are worthy before God. I mean, every one of us were created to image God. Think about what that means. You're not just created to be another creature. You're not just a squirrel or, or, or a deer or a duck. You're not some sort of animal or plant that's just there and wonderful and the creature, cre- creation of God. You're not just that, even though you are a creation of God. You were made in the image and likeness of God. You're to mirror him. That's a tall task. How in the world do we do it? Follow the pattern of the Savior. Jesus is our beautiful example. How did he do it? He rested in the Father. We rest in God as well. We recognize the power within us, and we allow God to do what God wants to do. I wonder this morning, as a follower of Jesus, are you just tired? I think we've got a lot of tired Christians walking around. I think we've got a lot of weary believers in the church today. I, I mean, here's a question. Do you regularly experience victory over sin in your life? I believe we've got a lot of sinful Christians in the church today. There's no victory. There may be momentary little bitty victories here and there, but where's the victorious life? Is your life personified by a series of ups and downs with little to no progress? I mean, when you get to the end of the year, it's 2021 now. When we begin 2022 and when you do your New Year's resolutions, are you going to go back and say, well, I wanted to accomplish this in my walk with Jesus, but I made little to no headway. Why is that, the, why is that so common in our Christian lives? Could it be that we have never understood What Paul's telling us here in these verses so rather than having a series of ups and downs we need a process of of just allowing God to work in us and we work out of that Jesus said I'm the vine you're the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing I wrote this this morning I was looking over this again we think about going to work and working out of that power source, think about it like this. God's packed you a lunch. Work out of that lunch. You're not going somewhere else for it. You're, you're, you're living, you're resourced out of the lunch he's packed you for today. And you're, just, you're allowing his provision to be pressed out through your life. As you surrender, as you yield, as you say no to sin, as you walk in fellowship with other believers, as you allow them to to be iron in your life, to sharpen you, to, to point out inadequacies in you, all of that for your sanctification. But it's not you doing it in your own power. It's not you doing it in the power of others. It's you just resting and abiding in Jesus Christ every single day, moment by moment. How do you live the Christian life? Just like that. It's not some sort of three-step process. It's just, Lord God, I need you today. Oh, I need you. We sing that song, but I wonder how many times if we just sing that song because it's the song do we think about what we're singing. We desperately need God. The good news this morning is this. God's there. You know, the Bible tells us that We are the creation of God. He's made us perfectly for him made in his image made in his likeness to perfectly reflect and to perfectly relate to him and what we've talked about here is that we all have a sin problem, right? That's the bad news of the Bible, but that's the bad news you need to hear. That's the bad news I needed to hear. Uh, what, 20-something years ago in 1997 when God opened up to me, First John chapter 5, and that, that verse there it says, he who has the Son has life, that he who does not have the Son does not have life. And I realized there the bad news of my life. I had religion, I had church, I had Christian friends, I had ministry, I was teaching 7th sun, grade Sunday school class at the time as a freshman in college. I had everything religiously. I would have fit well into the crowd of Pharisees in Jerusalem, but there was no life in mine life that's the bad news sin separates us from God here's the best news Jesus God the son has come to pay your sin debt so that you could have the life Paul's talking about here in Philippians chapter 2 this morning I want just got one one more question is that life your life and if it's not this morning today could be the day for salvation and you and if it is true but you're not maybe, maybe not walking in that, you're walking in that guilty distance I meant earlier, there's good news for you as well. There's always forgiveness at the foot of the cross. God always welcomes his children back home. Luke chapter 15, Jesus shared a parable of the father looking down the road, waiting for the prodigal son to come home. Now, I think the prodigal son is a lost person, but let's just put it in the context of Christians coming home. Because sometimes we get in a, in a funk. We get in a place where we're not walking in fellowship with the Lord, and he's the father who's sitting there on the front porch of his house, looking down the road, waiting for that prodigal to come home. Maybe you need to come home this morning. Good news is is there's always a welcome mat that says, come on in.